Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, Cannoneers and uh, Cannonades. This is Daniel. To uh, Here just to remind you at the top of the show that uh, the Cannonball is proud to be a part of Agora Podcast Network. Uh, head on over to agorapodcastnetwork.com to check out a bunch of really great shows that if uh, if you like the Cannonball, I am certain you'll enjoy all of our uh, sister shows over there. And uh, relatedly, Agora Podcast Network podcasts are brought to you by Studio. Uh, Studio Sweden uh, headphones. Uh, they are absolutely terrific. I can I can say so myself. I actually uh, have a pair that I have been really enjoying over the last few weeks. Um, just absolutely the best sounding headphones I've ever had. Uh, I have the, uh, there are several styles available. I've been using the Trey earbud style and, uh, super comfortable stays in my stupid giant ears that everything else falls out of absolutely a superior headphone. Uh, whether you're listening to someone like me drone on, on podcasts or audiobooks, it even sounds great for music. Uh, a lot of earbuds don't, but, uh, these sound absolutely terrific. There are other, there's full ear, uh, full earphones, um, other varieties of earbuds over studio, uh, all Bluetooth enabled, all have great battery life, just a terrific, uh, just terrific for any audiophile out there. So check out studio.com, S-U-D-I-O.com. And since you are a listener to the Cannonball, you are going to have access to special 15% off discount code. Um, and pay attention y'all because this is super secret just for you guys. C-A-N-N-O-N-B-A-L-L. That's Cannonball, but spelled like the gun instead of the thing we're talking about. That's a, uh, that's a secret little, uh, well, it's just a little secret for you guys to make sure that only the true Cannonball fans get that amazing 15% off over at studio.com. Check them out. to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Dr. Claude Myron Guzer coming at you with uh, a little less voice than I usually have. And with me is Daniel Doherty, my partner in crime, 
who is also coming to you with less voice than he usually has. <laughs> uh, less voice, but it, I, I'm at that that part in a, a head cold where I get a nice baso timbre, and uh, oh, that I'm that I'm really into. I don't know how much this uh, this this podcast mic is picking up, but I got to tell you, it, it feels pretty good to have the old rumble in the uh, in the voice box here. Um, but yeah, so so apologies in advance for any sniffling. I'm, I'm trying to be very cognizant of that. Uh, but we're, you know, we're both, it, it, it is, it is the season and we both have young children. And so, <laughs> you know, we're constantly exposed to every disease vector you can think of. So Exactly. And so this, this episode is coming in uh, a little bit late, but, uh, we're, we're dealing with Montaigne and if anything, this is a reminder that we are human. <laughs> so. If if Montaigne's good for anything, it's this a reminder that uh, as as scattered and human as we can be, you can you can be even more scattered and human and be considered a genius. <laughs> oh goodness! All right, so tonight we're we're sort of taking on book two, and we figured the the best way to do this is actually not to take on book two. <laughs> um, we or did. rather, like there's because the thing the thing about book two is that it's it's utterly dominated by what is easily the longest essay in the whole in his whole essays series yeah. right yeah the the apology for raymond simone which takes up sort of a central space in book two and in the essays like there's yeah, yeah. there's nothing this sustained in in all of the essays and like you said it sort of takes up a huge chunk of space so we figured uh a lot of the stuff around it is very very close to the kinds of meditations on death that we had approached sort of last time mm-hmm. and you know the function of philosophy what it means to think uh so on and so forth so we figured that this we could do a sort of sustained reading of this one essay uh, and then move on to book three later. So that's what, what we're going to try to do tonight as, as much as we possibly can. Now, before we get to that, I did have uh, something that I wanted to address and we didn't really cover it too much last time. You know, we were focusing sort of on the parts of Montaigne that we were a little more enamored of. Mm-hmm. But there's something that comes through in in book two that's really – well, it's problematic and it's his misogyny. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no – there's no other way to say it than to be frank. And I suppose if we're dealing with Montaigne, we're, we're dealing with being as frank as possible. Yeah. But and, 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 uh, you know, who, whom among us is shocked at the, uh, at, at a, at an element of misogyny in the writings of a Western tradition philosopher. My goodness. Never have yeah. I heard of such a thing. He said sarcastically. Yeah. So, uh, but the, it's, it, for me, it was disruptive this time around. Yeah, uh, looking at it, it, it this time around, meaning in this section of essays that we were looking at, there there are a couple of essays early on where uh, he sort of regurgitates some of the no means yes discourse of the the 16th century. Uh, it's it's really discomforting stuff about how. Okay, this is not me. This is Montaigne. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really discomforting stuff, where he claims that some women enjoy rape because it allows them to um, still protest and yet enjoy the act at the same time. 
Right. Uh, yeah. There's in particular uh, a whole essay uh, the di- that difficulty increases desire, where he he plays on that trope again. It's it's sort of a really disgusting trope that was commonplace, you know, up even into the the 18th century that. Yeah. Uh, women say no but mean yes and that the whole point of coquettishness or what he claims is coquettishness is to stimulate desire in men yeah uh, it's it it was hard to take uh, what's and what i thought was interesting about that particular essay the uh the, yeah that our desires are augmented by difficulty is that he couches that particular sort of uh i don't know what you would call it sort of sex domination angle in a sort of wider, you know, like you sort of making this wider point that, like, I guess I always heard the the proverb growing up: uh, "Hunger is the best sauce." You know, like this kind of right. like when you have to really struggle for it and work for it, it makes it all the sweeter. And and taking that kind of do you know, that kind of broad point, you know, talking about uh, you know various and sundry different endeavors, and then sort of applying it to like, yeah, and when you really have to, you know, when you really have to overcome a woman's objections, it's like, oh. Good Lord, no. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's it, that's a completely – he, he, he doesn't sort of recognize the uh, – that, you know, when, when you bring another thinking, feeling human being into the mix, that there's there's a different <clears throat> dynamic going on rather than just, you know, yeah. your, your, your satisfaction being, being you, you know, uh, sharpened by this struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and – so I, I mean, I know I was discomforted by that, but I, I honestly would be curious to know what any women listeners uh, really felt about that. Because mm-hmm. because we, we're both, you know, we're both, um, you know, we're both men. Uh, we're both, you know, male identifying people, and so I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that there are there are aspects and angles that just, you know, just yeah, fly fly right over my head. Well, but yeah, if yeah. One of one of my one of the things that I would that I wish we could do more effectively is have other voices in, and mm-hmm. we're we're trying to arrange that down the road um, because that is an important part of understanding, you know, how the stuff operates. What am mm-hmm. I missing? How might someone else from a different perspective read this or think about this? And I really would like to hear what some people who are, are sort of on the other end of this would feel about this. So, and I know that, that people are reading along. So if anybody has any insights into you know what this was like, was this disruptive? Was this something that you could overlook and pass off as, well, times have changed, even though, you know, honestly, they, they haven't. Really. <laughs> right. They have not changed um, nearly as much as we might think. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was a younger man, I think I would have just dismissed this as being, you know, of his time. But as I've gotten older, the more I see it's, it's not. Mm-hmm. And I, I would be curious if I, w- I would be curious about the experiences of anybody reading this part of what this is is an experiential podcast or an experiential attempt to read literary works, an affective attempt. Um, I was really sort of appalled mm-hmm. and frankly disgusted by some of this. And it made, it shaded the reading of some of the other things, but mm-hmm. 
I would like to know, you know how other people sort of encountered it. So that's, you know, if anybody has any insights, you know, let us know. I, I, yeah, because we're um, yeah, because next month we'll we'll still be on Montaigne. We'll be, we'll be rounding out Montaigne with the third book of essays. So we'll yeah. it'll still be on topic. We'd like to read anyone's uh, <laughs> anyone's thoughts on it. Okay, so I guess that moves us into the apology itself. Now, mm-hmm. okay, uh, Seban was uh, a thinker and a writer who had written a tract. I, I'm not quite sure I completely got what exactly Seban was up to. Did, yeah. Do you have more of a handle on that? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can place, I can place this uh, sort of in the in the context of the times. So, uh, Sibond was, I mean, honestly, uh, without Montaigne having written an essay with his name in it, I, I, I doubt I would have ever heard of this guy. <laughs> but, but he was important at the time. He was a uh, basically kind of a, a what were at the time called natural philosopher, um, sort of a, a, a thinker in, uh, uh, in uh, was from. Barcelona, if I recall, his Catalonian was his sort of national background, but he was uh, was a, a faculty member at the University of Toulouse uh, in what is today southern France and uh, what was at the time much more culturally um, connected with uh, the Catalonian region in, in what is today Spain that actually had a, a, a dialect a, a dialect continuum. <laughs> but that's getting way off base already. Um, so anyway, so Raymond Saban was a guy who who wrote a tract in the, in the 1400s uh, that was called uh, Natural Theology or Book of Creatures. Um, and his main thrust in writing it was he was, he was basically sort of writing in a, a at this time, well-established vein, because um, he was basically echoing Thomas Aquinas, who by the 15th century had pretty much been accepted as the official sort of natural philosophy doctrine of the catholic church of the western latin church um but the main thrust of of his work was that you that you could you could discover facts about theology you could discover things about the nature of god you could discover things about the nature of the true reality of the universe not just via the testament of scripture but also via the testament of creation itself his reasoning being that you know creation is uh you know what what is the first and you know most obvious testament to the creator god well that would have to be the creation itself <laughs> and you know and 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 second would be of course his revealed word which you know clarified some things to, <laughs> in in the vision of the you know the latin christian west you know the his revealed word in the old testament and the new testament which clarified a few things but you could start at the natural world and come to these sort of using using reason using rational inquiry you could come to these, you know, the conclusions that would be supported by scripture as well, um, which which was a very well. So this was, of course, this was Thomas Aquinas's big project. This was his mm-hmm. marriage of the Aristotelian empiricism. I'm using big air quotes for that, um, but but basically the idea that all knowledge must ultimately based be based on some sort of sensory input. That's what we would call empiricism. Right. Um, but sort of wedding that, that Aristotelian natural philosophy with the revealed truths of Catholic dogma and Catholic doctrine and making the point that like, Oh, these are in seamless harmony because of course 
if truth is truth, and we know truth from looking at the world, and we know truth from the received wisdom of the church, then because they're both true, then it has to be, you know, completely in harmony. And oh, look at that, you know, and, and don't, you know, don't mind that, you know, sort of papered over crack in the corner over there. Um, so in Montaigne's day, this was, uh, I believe Montaigne encountered the text because uh, he was asked to translate it into French, because it had been written in a kind of uh, Catalonian inflected Latin. And so he had been, I think it was his father himself, wasn't it? Had yeah, asked him yeah. to, yeah, had asked him, you know, his father had this, you know, great library. And he was like, you know what? I really like this Raymond Saban guy. Uh, I think here would be a good project for you, kid. Translate this, <laughs> this dense natural theology text. Um, so that's where Montaigne encounters this guy. And so in his apology for Raymond Saban, what he's doing is ostensibly, again, again, with Montaigne, we always have to say like, ostensibly what this essay is about, you know, is, is different from what it actually ends up being about. But ostensibly what he's doing is answering some challenges to the sort of, to the philosophical arguments that Saban is making. And he's specifically answering challenges from the kind of the reforming end of Western oh. Christendom. He's answering challenges from the Lutherans, uh, sort of most, most basically. Um, and of course by, you know, by, uh, what by the mid 1500s uh, the, the lutherans have been joined by uh there's the anabaptist reformers who are a little more radical these are the radical reformers who actually kind of who actually kind of made luther respectable honestly <laughs> the, right. the lutherans could point to the anabaptists and say look at least we aren't those guys so let us you know leave us alone and we'll be okay um and the you know uh, john calvin was starting to sort of cultivate his vision of reformation um so there were a number of sort of objections specifically to the what's called the scholastic tradition Right. Um, which sort of Saban is kind of a, he was a, you know, a B league scholastic, basically, you know, he's a B league Thomas. Um, but Montaigne apparently had enough of a soft spot that he wrote his longest, most widely ranging essay as a way of answering these challenges to why actually no Raymond Saban was, he did make good things and you should think his <laughs> things are good. Well, I think you're getting to uh, part of the issue. <clears throat> Uh, is that this is a wide-ranging essay. And if this is a defense of Saban, um, you might miss that fact. He's, he's barely mentioned at all. Like, at all. It's yeah. astonishing. So I think what we're going to try to do is um, just dive into some of the relative bits and pieces to pick out how it's operating, what exactly he's saying. And and the thing is, this operates like a shorter essay of his, just bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same, you know, he's going to make a proposition, digress, give you 23 examples of something that proves the digression, mm -hmm. somehow meander his way back to some kind of central point end up with some bizarre analysis of some weird habit he's had since he was 12, uh, <laughs> right. give you an appreciation of a horse he once saw, and then come to the conclusion, I guess this proves my point, but what do I know? Yeah. And, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because it's kind of like um, – it's it's kind of like you know when like uh, an author gets like big enough for his britches that the editor or the publisher can't really tell him no anymore. Yeah, can't can't really if the author doesn't want to be edited, you know, it just doesn't happen. This is this is sort of reads like you know Montaigne off unleashed. He's he's yeah. off the leash. Whatever editor he might have had was on vacation that week, and so he's just going hog wild. 
All right. So there, there are a couple of things, though, or a couple of points that we've sort of been discussing that, that really sort of shine through. And one is how this reveals some of the paradoxical aspects of his politics. There's another way in which his seeming sometimes embrace of Pyrrhonism sounds an awfully lot like deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And then um, the comparisons of the human to the animal, which – Right. As a, as a way of sort of demonstrating why humans aren't hot shit. Yeah. Like, don't think you're so great because everything you think is unique to humans actually isn't. And here I'm going to show, you know, X, Y, Z. It's a, it's, it's probably the most like – it's the most fun section of the essay because it is, it is, you know, it's pretty closely observed with a lot of these, you know, a lot of these animals. Yeah. So I guess we can just, those are, are sort of like three major things. And then mm-hmm. we'll have, you know, as he throws stuff our way, we'll have other slight observations that we have. And then I guess the only thing to do is just sort of dive in. So yeah. I wrote about 70 theses. <laughs> We're going to yeah, nail them are, to Montaigne's door. I, I annotated uh, 70 small bits or passages, and we're not going to get through all of them, but I think in our sickened state, we can get through enough to kill an hour. Sure. So why don't we try that? Now, the the first thing that, that struck me was uh, pretty close to the beginning where he's – justifying having a book like Saban's in the public. And he says, the mass of ordinary people lack the faculty of judging things as they are, letting themselves be carried away by chance appearances. Once you've put into their hands the foolhardiness of despising and criticizing opinions which they used to hold in the highest awe, such as those which concern their salvation, and once you have thrown into the balance of doubt and uncertainty any articles of their religion, they soon cast all the rest of their beliefs into similar uncertainty. They had no more authority for them, no more foundation for than for those you have just undermined. And so, as though it were the yoke of a tyrant, they shake off all those other concepts which had been impressed upon them by the authority of law and the awesomeness of ancient custom. Now, this is an interesting moment because what he's doing is basically saying, at least as I'm interpreting this, not everyone can do what I do. On the one hand, his his dictum, you know, what do I know? Uh, the there's a, a a profound uncertainty at the heart of every human endeavor. Uh, truth, as he sort of sets out to show, is often quite relative. Any proposition that you can make, the opposite of it is most like is also likely to be true. Okay, these are things that he values, and yet he starts off by saying, well, most people can't handle that because if they see doubt in one place, they'll see doubt everywhere and throw off the authority that should keep them in line. Yeah. So this intellectual doubt, which seems like a liberating thing, can also be threatening in this other weird kind of way it's a doubt that he sees leading others to a kind of false liberation but a doubt which keeps him sort of conservatively aligned to 
arbitrary forms of authority that he recognizes are arbitrary. Yeah. But he just goes with them. Like it's almost a kind of um, – it's like a utilitarian vision of authority and truth. Yeah. Like, like it's it's almost like, look, you know – Sure, we can we can uh, we can reject received authority, but that would be chaos. Who who knows? You know. Yeah, and so that gets at the the sort of weirdly frustrating aspect of some of his politics. That it on the one hand it looks as if this is sort of freeing the mind from certain kinds of cant. On the other, it it frees it from cant just to capitulate to systems that it recognizes are flawed right right it's it's a it's a it's a kind of um it's kind of intellectual cover for reconciling yourself to i mean what was um oh goodness i know it's a mark twain quote but i forget which like character is in it might be like a huckleberry finn or something um but uh, the mark twain quote was uh, faith is believing what you know ain't so <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think that's I think that's a, a folksy way to put uh, Montaigne's point there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that that comes fairly early in the essay, and that just opens up some of these issues that we're going to have throughout it. Um, but I, I suppose keep that on the back burner. All right. So he starts making the claim that uh, where is it? That in some ways the supernatural has to be the thing that uh, keeps us in conjunction. Mm. The knot which ought to attach our judgment and our will and to clasp our souls firmly uh, to our creator should not be one tied together with human considerations and strengthened by emotions. It should be drawn tight in a clasp both divine and supernatural and have only one form, one face, one luster, namely the authority of God and his grace. So again, we're back to this issue of the idea of authority, but it's also Montaigne sort of weirdly capitulating to the supernatural. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, he's uh, so fascinated by the pragmatic, what we can know based on our experience. But here, he seems to be making some kind of foundational claim that it's what we can't know which pulls everything together it's something that we can't understand or something which escapes human comprehension right and, and something which is outside of yeah human experience utterly yeah um, that, that's kind of i think if we had to pick one sort of through thread mm-hmm. for this this essay it's it's that insistence that um that 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 human reason is actually incapable of comprehending things properly which is again odd because he's supposed to be defending saban against these accusations that sound a lot like that right (laughs) i I mean that that's that's what's kind of frustrating but also kind of fascinating you know he gets to this part towards the end where he's making all kinds of claims about how all the promises of heaven are innately false because if we go there when we're dead, then it means we're not material anymore. So there can be no material basis to prepare us for what the experience of the afterlife is like. Yeah. And that becomes foundational for him. 
Yeah, it's a, that was that was a fascinating ele- uh, part to me because he he ends up. Um, if I recall correctly, he leads into this with a kind of a discussion of the uh, the as he understands it, the Islamic vision of paradise. Yes, that would await true believers. Um, and he and he makes you know he makes the point that it's like, look, I mean, everyone you know can only all they're ever imagining is just this terrestrial life, but better because yeah. that's all they can imagine because that's all that they have because of all they really have is empirical observation. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I feel like I always go to Beckett because I, I just know Beckett so well. But um, there's a late. It, it's it's actually Beckett's last novel um, called Worshward Ho, uh, where it's a mind trying to imagine um, the best worst thing, like what's the least most thing a mind can imagine until there's nothing left, so that it can stop yeah and it's it's written in this kind of weird superlative game and it starts out on say on be said on somehow on till know how on said know how on um on go somehow on somehow keep going till know how on i.e till you stop (laughs) said know how on presumed stopping but what's beyond the stop we don't and can't know and and that seems to be what montaigne is getting at and in this weird way it's that lack of knowledge which for him is foundational yeah yeah but let's talk for a while about why human beings uh are less than animals uh, this is, <laughs> yeah this was i think um just this, this was clearly the yeah, and this is clearly I, I think this is like the the fun portion, and this is also the most famous. Yeah, I think por- like uh, portion of the entire essays, and I thought that it was also interesting that the the apology uh, is, I believe that it's really, I think it's the only, I think maybe of cannibals also gets published separately, but yeah, uh, the apology is is one of the very few essays which ever gets published in an edition on its own. Like not yeah. part of the the collection of essays, and I think it's part of it on the strength of <laughs> this portion, where he's demonstrating that like, look, human, you know, human reason itself is never going to be up to the task because mm-hmm. human beings themselves are not superior beings. They are not, you know, they they imagine themselves to be between God and the animals, uh, but they they aren't, and <laughs> and this I think was pretty interesting because it's a. I mean, in a way, it's a refutation of the extremely Aristotelian notion of the great chain of being, which was also yeah. an extremely Catholic notion yeah. because of because of Aristotle, because of Thomism. But this is a sort of a an extended kind of demolishing of that notion or rather, I guess, like placing it like, look, sure, there's a great chain of being, but God is so far beyond it that it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> And so he has this line. So let us consider for a while man in isolation, man with no outside help, armed with no arms but his own, and stripped of that grace and knowledge of God in which consist his dignity, his power, and the very ground of his being. Let us see how much constancy there is in all his fine panoply. Let man make me understand by the force of discursive reason what are the grounds on which he has founded and erected all those advantages which he thinks he has over other creatures, and who has convinced him that it is for his convenience, his service, that for so many centuries there has been 
been established and maintained the awesome notion of the vault of heaven, the everlasting light of those tapers coursing proudly overhead, or the dread surging of the boundless sea? Is it possible to imagine anything more laughable than that this pitiful, wretched creature, who is not even master of himself but exposed to shocks on every side, should call himself master and emperor of a universe, <laughs> the smallest particle of which he has no mean of, means of knowing, let alone swaying? Um, <laughs> He takes humanity to task right off the bat and uh, just accuses humankind of the utmost vanity. The natural original distemper of man is presumption. Man is the most blighted and frail of all creatures and, moreover, the most given to pride. <clears throat> this creature knows and sees that he is lodged down here among the mire and shit of the world, bound and nailed to the deadest, most stagnant part of the universe, and the lowest story of the building, the farthest from the vault of heaven. His characteristics place him in the third and lowest category of animate creatures, yet, in thought, he sets himself above the circle of the moon, bringing the very heavens under his feet. The vanity of this same thought makes him equal himself to God, attribute to himself God's mode of being, pick himself out and set himself apart from the mass of other creatures, and, although they are his fellows and his brothers, carve out for them some such helpings of force or faculties as he thinks fit. How mm. can he, from the power of his own understanding, know the hidden, hidden inward motivations of animate creatures? What comparison between us and them leads him to conclude that they have the attributes of senseless beasts? And then comes the punchline, When I play with my cat, how do I know that she is not passing time with me rather than I with her? So, <laughs> yeah, it's... What what he's sort of assaulting here, I think, is the presumption of reason, which is sort of ironic because he's been using philosophy this whole time to allow him to make peace with death and dying. Mm -hmm. And throughout this essay, well, philosophy, it's just a presumption. Yeah. Well, honestly, speaking speaking of this kind of philosophical irony, there's there's a kind of wider. I, I, I noticed it in reading the uh, the apology that there's a there's a wider irony, especially in the apology, in in Montaigne's whole project, and it goes back to humanism. Yeah. And when we don't mean humanism in the sense of kind of its contemporary usage, meaning you know like an atheistic uh, consideration of hum human beings as being. Uh, you know, equally worthy and, you know, and capable of good things. Um, humanism in the context of the Renaissance was the term goes back to the, this uh, sort of medieval uh, splitting of all literature between the divinities, which is that literature concerning God and divinity and humanities, which is literature about anything else and everything else, <laughs> um, or rather human, human concerns and human affairs. And what was going on, humanism was this huge, intellectual vogue which had set itself up in opposition to the scholasticism of people like Saband, um which was a very staid a very formalized a very rote kind of thinking that was very much based on uh the kind of like rigorous logical step-by-step -step thinking humanism which got its big shot in the arm with the western europe getting access to a ton of uh works from classical antiquity thanks to the refugee scholars from Byzantium because, you know, in, in the, I guess in the, well, it had been a, <laughs> don't get me started on Byzantium, but in a, <laughs> a many centuries process, which had come to a head by uh, the early 1400s with the, uh, the, with the Ottoman Turks, Turkish state sort of uh, eclipsing it. Um, all of the 
classical, you know, works of classical antiquity that had been sort of preserved by scholars in the Eastern Mediterranean world, uh, thanks to those scholars having to flee to the Western Mediterranean world, became accessible to the scholars of the Latin West. And so there was this big vogue for reading all of those, what had been classified in the humanities, in this division mm. between divinities and humanities, <clears throat> and finding that, like, hey, you know, maybe, you know, there's stuff we can learn here. There's wisdom here. We can use this stuff. And that's what Montaigne does all throughout his essays, because all of his essays are sprinkled with these quotations from the classical authors. Right, right. Um, and it's not theological authors. It's classical, you know, quote-unquote secular authors, or rather, like, non theological authors um and it's a tradition the uh whereas scholasticism sort of venerated the uh i guess what you might call sort of systematized uh rational discourse humanism was much more interested in rhetoric right as as an actual vehicle of truth not you know we might consider that sophistry <laughs> to borrow a, a yeah. term of classical antiquity but that was a very real thing that the humanists were doing and that's what Montaigne is doing. He's using he, – he's, he's relying on the authority. He's relying on this vogue of finding wisdom in the classical authors to support this supposition that actually humans can't offer anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's – I guess we'll get into it in a little bit, but that seems to be his his elevation of Pyrrhonism, if he, even if it is an elevation. it's It seems to me he's hedging his bets a little bit. I don't think he wants to completely say, hey, we should all be Pyrrhonists. But he gives them enough credit that it seems like that's at least how he finds value in some of the writers that he's reading. Yeah. And for, for the sake of folks at home and, and possibly folks on the other end of this call, um, <laughs> what's, the, what's the sort of quick and dirty definition of Pyrrhonism? Um it as far as i understand it it okay i don't have much of a handle on it at all but as far as i understand it it, it was um a philosophy in antiqu antiquity that sort of argued against itself what it was trying to do was show the relativity of all truth claims to produce this state of paradox called ataraxia which is a kind of I guess the best way to think about it is that sort of blissful, non-thinking state produced by a Zen koan. Okay. To, yeah. to meditate on it enough so that the the rational thinking mind shuts down and you find a kind of meditative peace. Um, as Montaigne uses them, what he seems to be getting at is this idea <clears throat> that all of these rhetorical truths that everybody is writing – in, in antiquity or or around him, these rhetorical truths are always equally true. So you can you, you can frame a statement that has a truth claim. You can also frame the opposite statement, and both statements, if framed accurately and adequately, will cancel each other out more or less. Yeah. Now this <clears throat> this has a parallel with 20th century deconstruction um and i'm clearly yeah. by no means the first i'm I, i'm by no means the first to make this parallel i think this has been a, a a long um this has long been an observation in the field now 
deconstruction, though, it doesn't, as far as I understand it, and I'm not an expert here. I've I've done enough of Derrida and Daman to get <laughs> a taste of it. Yeah, uh, and that taste, that's enough for me. Yeah. But um, a, a, as far as I understand, what Derrida more or less was trying to do was something similar, but rather than resting in this kind of meditative Zen space, it's about the restlessness. It's about uh, acknowledging how we're constantly shuttling between meanings, mm-hmm. that no one meaning is stable, and it's all about the the sort of shiftiness and the necessary shiftiness, right? The, and it and the how play between signifiers and not the rest, right? And that is kind of his way of setting up how then that is the necessity of supernatural uh intervention basically yeah. well like, you, 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 derrida you, doesn't say that but montaigne does oh right right yeah no yeah, i'm sorry to say that, that that's the setup for montaigne to say that yeah 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 that if if all of this stuff is constantly sliding then um we always only have recourse to the higher authority and that's actually the critique that people have been making of deconstruction for a long time. Uh, Even when it was sort of first starting out, there was a mode of critique that wanted to say, this is a sort of reactionary conservatism in disguise. Because at the end of the day, if all you're doing is embracing the fluid energy that moves back and forth, that never rests, then you're opening the door to not really challenging authoritarian power structures, but reifying them mm-hmm. just by capitulating to them because there is nothing else. Anyway, that's the critique. <laughs> As you can see, uh, dear listener at home, uh, when we said this was wide ranging uh, and touched on a lot of stuff, we were, we were not kidding. Do you this want is, me yeah. to go to the part where he talks about philosophers farting or why doggy style is the best kind of sex? Because that also <laughs> is in here. This is Montaigne we're talking about. Yeah. But um, he he works all of this sort of all together. And I guess to bring it back, he, he just gives this catalog of why humans really can't cut it. Um, he talks about human desires. He says desires are either natural and necessary, like eating and drinking, natural and not necessary, such as mating, or else neither natural nor necessary, like virtually all human ones, which are entirely superfluous and artificial. Yeah. Nature needs wonderfully little to be satisfied and leaves little indeed for us to desire. The activities of our kitchens are not nature's ordinance. Stoics say that a man could feed himself on one olive a day. The choiceness of our wines owes nothing to nature's teachings any more than do the refinements we load onto our sexual appetites um this is almost montane like okay throughout this section or throughout this this essay i keep having montane the this or montane the that um this seems to be montane almost the marxist who wants to say well it's the system uh which convinces us that we have a need or desire Mm-hmm. And if we look at what we actually need and desire, it's really rather simple. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like this kind of, uh, you know, this, this kind of puncturing of, of these 
these vanities that, of course, he would be intimately familiar with, with his contact with the kind of courtly culture of the time. You know, exactly. He, he had been a you know a diplomat. He had been you know he had he had seen the uh, I'm I'm sure intense backbiting over who got to stand where, you know, when when uh, when you know Henry of Navarre holds court or what have you. Right. So he he makes a run through war. As for war, the most grandiose and glorious of human activities. I would like to know whether we want to use. It to prove our superiority or, on the contrary, to prove our weakness and imperfection, we know how to f- defeat and kill each other to undermine and destroy our own species. Not much there, it seems, to make them want to learn from us, i.e. not much that animals can yeah. learn from us. Um, he punctures that presumption. And then there's this weird moment where he says, the souls of emperors and cobblers are cast in the same mold. Mm-hmm. We consider the importance of the actions of princes and their weight and then persuade ourselves that they are produced by causes equally weighty, equally important, in that we deceive ourselves. They are tossed to and fro by the same principles as we are. The reasons that make us take issue with a neighbor lead princes to start a war. The same reason which makes us flog a lackey makes kings lay waste a province. They can do more, but can wish as lightly. The same desire tr- uh, desires trouble a fleshworm and an elephant. So, you know, on the one hand, <clears throat> there's the authoritarian impulse in Montaigne. On the other, there's this kind of leveling of all human activity. Look, there's no one of us who really operates on a different level than any of the others. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of like a, you were saying, you know, there's Montaigne the Marxist. I think this is, you know, Montaigne the uh, what, the Bakuninite anarchist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, like, you, you can go through the essay and you you find these moments that are really fascinating because they open up um, <clears throat> certain kinds of, well, like I said, levelings. But at the same time, he keeps veering back and forth between there's this tearing down of all these structures and the possibility of a kind of mental liberation from those structures but it's only ever going to be a mental liberation mm-hmm. and it only goes so far when it turns back to capitulate to an authoritarian order. So <laughs> he gives us he gives us a rundown of why philosophy itself is even vain and why we shouldn't even do it in the first place. And so he says, now even that share in nature's favor, which we do concede to the animals as much to their advantage, to ourselves we attribute goods which are purely imaginary and fantastical, future absent goods which it exceeds our human capacity of itself to vouch for, or else they are goods which our unruly opinions attribute to ourselves quite wrongly, such as knowledge, rationality, or preeminence. We abandon to animals a share in solid palpable goods which really do exist, peace, repose, security, innocence, health health the fairest finest gift that nature can bestow so we trade calmness security health for philosophy Mm -hmm. and thinking and abstract reasoning and self-awareness and self-consciousness and it just leads us down the wrong road that is why even stoic philosophy dares to assort that heraclitus who had dropsy and Pherecides, who had been infested by lice, would have been right, if they could, to barter their wisdom against a cure. By weighing and comparing wisdom against health, they make it even more splendid than in another of their assertions. Supposing Circe, they say, had presented Ulysses with two different potions, one to make a madman wise, the other a wise man mad. 
Rather than allow her to transform him from human to beast, he ought to have accepted the one that would make him mad. Wisdom herself, they say, would have argued like this. Leave me, forsake me, rather than lodge me in the bodily shape of an ass. What? Will philosophers forsake wisdom, great and divine, to cleave to the veil of this earthly body? So we do not, after all, excel over beasts by wit, and our power of reason, but merely by our physical beauty, our beautiful color, the beautiful way our members are arranged. For things like that, we must forsake our intellect, our moral wisdom, and whatnot. This sounds like Swift. Mm-hmm. Uh, this sounds like Gulliver's Travels, where in the, the sort of famous fourth book of Gulliver's Travels that few people actually read, uh, <laughs> Gulliver <clears throat> ends up on the island of the horses who are so absolutely pragmatically rational that they don't even have a word for lie. Uh, for them, it is saying the thing that is not. And Gulliver is so transformed on that island that when he goes back to England, he can't behave like a normal human anymore. He wishes he was a horse. <laughs> this is sort of Montaigne saying, uh, wouldn't it be more rational to trade humanity for being a horse or being a, a mule? Because the rest is just vanity. I think this is among the most self-refuting and we're talking about Montaigne. So he's, he's prone to self-refutation constantly. And, and here he is like sort of this, this, uh, he's, he's, he's establishing a, a, using his human reason, establishing an argument why we shouldn't bother with paying attention to anyone's reasonable human argument. Exactly. And I, and I absolutely adore it. I am here for it. 100%. <laughs> it's, I, I mean, it's just so bizarre. Yeah. Right. Um, but anyway, so he, he walks us through why humanity, um, why humanity is lacking essentially. Mm -hmm. And it, it all sort of comes down to our vanity that we, we can know something above and beyond, uh, what is actually there. Right. And and I will and, I, and I, I should hasten to point out that this is um, this is part of his defense against people saying Saban has weak arguments. His, his his defense of Saban's weak arguments are saying like, look, pal, no one has good arguments. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and at a very basic level, which is why it goes into like how human beings are, you know, not much better than animals, and like you know, and this this radical this pyrrhonist uh, sort of radical. Uh, uh, epistemology he's working with millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah. 
Okay, so then I have another uh, moment. This is the Freudian Montaigne, uh, <laughs> where he's he's talking about um, basically the pain in pleasure. For even that tickling excitement which accompanies certain pleasures and which seems to exalt us above mere good health and freedom from pain, that shifting delight, active, inexplicably biting and sharp, aims in the end at freedom from pain. <clears throat> The appetite which enraptures us when we lie with women merely aims at banishing the pain brought on by the frenzy of our inflamed desires. All it seeks is rest and repose, free from the fever of passion. That is extraordinarily close to Freud in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, mm-hmm. where Freud uh, makes this claim that he, he shifts his earlier claims that what we wanted was uh, – we, we want sex for – procreation and so the sex drive is the primary drive and what he ends up saying is no that's just a cover for this nihilistic drive to self-destruction within us yeah and he changes his wording where he says that uh arousal is displeasure and the state of blissly release from consciousness uh in physical terms bodily orgasm is the true pleasure so it's what Montaigne would call tickling excitement, right? Um, that that desire, that sort of self perpetuating to the point of no return, or I guess not self perpetuating, but that sort of <laughs> perpetual. Well, I suppose, but yeah. that that sort of perpetuating to the point of no return, that that keeps falling back on itself to increase the intensity of sensation. Uh, that's right there in Montaigne. I, I was honestly kind of surprised to see that. Yeah. Because Freud treats it as his greatest insight. <laughs> and here it's sort of like, well. It's a, to- it's a, it's a, it's a tossed off, uh, you know, uh, observation in the middle of him trying to say that this Catalonian scholar's book is actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And it's a cast off observation or a tossed off observation that sort of, um, could incite a whole field of psychological studies. Yeah. Here's another tossed off observation, which seems like the the kernel for Proust's three thousand page novel. Uh, memory reproduces what she wants, not what we choose. Indeed, there is nothing which stamps anything so vividly on our memory as the desire not to remember it. The best way to impress anything on our souls and to make them stand guard over it is to beg them to forget it. He says in three sentences what Proust takes <laughs> like seven volumes to get to. Yeah. I mean, that's that. But that is In Search of Lost Time right there. Uh, OK, so we're sort of just. <clears throat> jumping through here and one of the 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 more more fascinating things uh for me is his uh oh and okay one more thing philosophy lays down the law on this subject in these words if some great evil should chance upon you one you cannot remedy then a haven is always near swim out of your body is from a leaky boat only a fool <laughs> is bound to his body not by love of life but by fear of death um, he has this justification for suicide, which is really yeah. kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, that seems to be not in line with an argument for Catholic doctrine. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, he he gets to this this part where there's this sort of extended discussion about how we we lack the reason or we lack the ability 
really to contemplate God at all. And he says, It is so far beyond our power to comprehend the majesty of God that the very works of our Creator which best carry his mark are the ones we least understand. To come across something unbelievable is, for Christians, an opportunity to exercise belief. It is all the more reasonable precisely because it runs counter to human reason. If it were reasonable, it would not be a miracle. If it followed a pattern, it would not be unique. Okay, do you follow that? I I, I think I follow it. I'm going to have a hard time sort of paraphrasing it. But like I, I guess the idea being that it is – if one is being asked to believe something extraordinary, then it must necessarily – in order for that to be believable, it must necessarily assail your notions of believability so much that you have no choice but to believe it. Um, th- that also is completely paradoxical, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But but I, I I think I get what he's saying there. That like you know if uh, and in a way it's almost a kind of mystic approach. Yeah. It's yeah. a kind of like look if this if these things made any sense they wouldn't be profound, or they wouldn't there wouldn't you know it, it's it's not you know the the uh, who who said the truth had to be apprehensible to you in the way you prefer, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And so then there's this, this is really kind of fascinating because he absolutely dismantles the, the very idea <clears throat> of a recognizable divinity. He yeah. says, we confidently use words like might, truth, justice. They are words signifying something great. What that something is, we cannot see or conceive. We say that God fears, that God is angry, that God loves. But there are disturbances and emotions which in any form known to us find no place in God, nor can we imagine them in forms known to him. God alone can know himself. God alone can interpret his works. And he uses improper human words to do so, stooping down to earth where we lie sprawling. Take prudence that consists in a choice between good and evil. How can that apply to God? No evil can touch him. Or take reason and intelligence by which we seek to attain clarity amidst obscurity. There is nothing obscure to God. Or justice, which distributes to each his due and which was begotten for the good of society and communities of men. How can that exist in God? And what about temperance? It moderates bodily pleasures which have no place in the Godhead. Nor is fortitude, in the face of pain, toil, or danger, one of God's qualities. Those three things are unknown to him. There you go. That explains why Aristotle held that God is equally as free from virtue as from vice. Yeah, yeah. what is divinity then? And I I think here he's sort of – I I, I feel like this is sort of Montaigne's sort of secondhand digestion of the, the Platonism. That have yeah. been reintroduced uh, through the the humanist endeavor. That kind of uh, that that kind of you know, and, and it's a bit, but it's a bit of a double shot too, because traditional you know Latin Christian theology had a huge dose of Platonism, um, thanks to its heritage as a thought system that arose out of late antiquity in the Roman Mediterranean, which itself was. Uh, you know, in, in which Platonism and Neoplatonism were hugely influential schools of thought, but things sort of getting this fresh dose, <laughs> you know, on, on top of that. Um, right there, there, there's this kind of um, the the you know, and of course, Plato is famous for uh, making the argument that the shape of God is a sphere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> kind of, but there's this kind of yeah, this this like, well, if we keep imagining the ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate, you eventually have to get to something that is 
inert. Yeah. That is unchanging. And and actually, that's uh, uh, I think that's one of the points that Montaigne makes maybe a little later that, you know, sort of illustrating how ill-equipped mankind is to understand anything that not only can he not – he cannot – you know, changing man can't even comprehend changing things, much less the unchanging. Yeah, that uh, Plato thought it was a sphere. Uh, what was it? The Epicurean – no. I can't remember. I, I lost my notes on this. Uh, one group thought it was a triangle. I think, was the, was I think the Pythagoreans, Pythagoreans had it as a, as a yeah, pyramid. Yeah. And then you know everybody has a shape for the divine. And he's like, it, how? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Montaigne's going like, well, we got to go one deeper. You got to, yeah. you got to get rid of your of shape. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's about at this point that he starts digging into the Pyrrhonians, and there's this sort of long passage here. Now the Pyrrhonians make their faculty of judgment so unbending and upright that it registers everything and bestows its assent on nothing. This leads to their well-known ataraxia, that is a claim, uh, that is a calm, stable rule of life, free from all the dis- disturbances caused by the impress of opinions or of such knowledge of reality as we think we have, which give birth to fear, acquisitiveness, envy, immoderate desires, ambition, pride, superstition, love of novelty, rebellion, disobedience, obstinacy, and the greater part of our bodily ills. In this way, they even free themselves from passionate sectarianism, for their disputes are mild affairs, and they are never afraid of the other side having its say. When they assert that heavy things tend to fall downwards, they would be most upset if you believed them. They want you to contradict them in order to achieve their end, doubt and suspense of judgment. They only put forward propositions of their own in order to oppose the ones they think we believe in, accept theirs, and they will gladly maintain the opposite. It is all the same to them. They take no sides. If you maintain that snow is black, they will argue that it is, on the contrary, white. If you say (laughs) that it is neither, their task is to say that it is both. If you conclude that you definitely know nothing, they will maintain that you do know something. Yes, and if you present your doubt as axiomatic, they will challenge you on that too, arguing that you are not in doubt, or that you cannot decide for certain, and prove that you are in doubt. This is doubt taken to its limits. It shakes its own foundations. Such extremes of doubt separate them completely from many other theories, including those which in many ways do indeed teach doubt and ignorance. <laughs> um, I, I've had uh, whole courses that were like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, graduate school in many cases is that. But what, you know... <laughs> He's he's opening up this possibility that um, this state of doubt or this state of radically accepting radical doubt leads you to this kind of calm where you stop thinking about it so much. Right. You, you, you think yourself into recognizing that you shouldn't bother thinking about it essentially yeah. yeah so it's an acceptance of that instability which becomes stabilizing in some way he seems to claim yeah okay now i'm not i'm not quite sure i buy that you know it's a very well i mean you know we're getting into like very rarefied territory anyway mm-hmm. um with all this and it's like and i guess this sort of goes back to his you know 
his proposition at the top of the whole piece that like, look, not everyone can do this. Because <laughs> you know? I think, I, I mean, uh, I I don't know of any sort of historical, uh, I don't know enough about any, say, historical Pyrrhonist communes or what have you, if there were any out there where everyone still managed to <clears throat> phys- physically provide for themselves whilst in this Zen state, this Nirvana state. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I feel like there would have to be some perturbation to get you to go ahead and go out there and pick beans or what have you. Um, <laughs> or maybe not. You know, that's, that's, just, that's just me having gotten nowhere near uh, uh, our, our, you know, our ataxia or whatever it was called. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I, I, I'm not quite entirely sure that I buy that because mm-hmm. on the one hand, um, that does seem so much a part of his project and so much a part of his humanizing. When I recognize my infallibility, when I recognize the limitations of my human knowledge, then I can kind of let go of some of the pretense, accept certain things as they are, and work with them to the best of my abilities. And what I can't work with, I just have to let go. Okay. On the other hand, it doesn't really set you up for modifying injustices. Things that you see that are are really problematic that need change. And it's almost like this method of radical doubt just allows them to go with the flow. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, given his context, I suppose is probably the best he could hope for. I mean, I think we were talking last time about just how tumultuous his times were right right and the, and that sort of ties in with his uh you mentioned earlier like his kind of his 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 politics veering between these sort of poles of uh if not radicalism then a kind of uh a more liberalized sort of vision and and just outright conservatism and uh, and i think that probably has a lot to do with having to navigate this extremely um uh disrupted time because mm-hmm. I, I think what's and what, what I think uh, contributes to just how disrupted this time was, and I think people people nowadays are so used to the world which this time created yeah. that they really underestimate just how much was up in the air. Ray, not just church authority with the Protestant Reformation, but also what secular authority could mean, because so many of these reforming movements turned to the worldly princes. To, uh, to basically rubber stamp them, to to yeah. provide them with their with their authority to enact these reforms, you know, uh, and so that was so, so the roles of what we might call the state, you know, which is a little bit of an anachronistic term at this time. Yeah. It might be better to say like you know secular the authority king. or the, the commonwealth, the king, right. right? You know, the king or the prince. Um, what role they might have. In the world, it, that was all being negotiated. All of it. All of it was being negotiated in a very violent way. <laughs> yeah. And the, I mean, it, it brings me back in some ways to our discussion of Moliere, where, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, he needs to have the king come on stage and say, hey, everybody out of the water, here's where it comes down. There has to be some kind of final authority. Right. Um, Montaigne's final authority. This seems dangerous to me. Montaigne's. Or, or dangerous for him. Montaigne's final authority is going to be God. Right. Which 
I, I guess you could say the same of the Calvinists. Exactly. That's what well, that's that's what really struck me is that's the that's the Lutheran position, right? That's that's right. what, and and that's really um, and it kind of goes back to what Luther was drawing on was a was first articulated by Augustine. You know that you know we think of Augustine, we think like, oh well, you know, I mean, he's he's the Catholic's Catholic, right? I mean, everyone <laughs> everyone knows Saint Augustine. The Church, you know, elevates him and. You know, he but there was a real tension in Augustine's works between because he was himself like very pro organized church, but he also had this vision of humanity as inherently what what came to be that kind of Calvinist, uh, what we associate most with the Calvinist tradition, the kind of pervasively corrupt that uh, that the human being was so totally helpless before the might of God that it was only the only person who. You could not initiate your own salvation. You could not initiate your own spiritual awakening. God had to decide to do that to you. Right. And that was Luther's big point. That was the whole thing he was he was basing a lot of his stuff on. And and that was what he would point to, though. Luther himself would be like, look, I, I didn't say this. God said it. <laughs> you know, like, and also, God told me to say that because I couldn't believe that until God told me to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, like, <clears throat> Montaigne is, you know, he, he – uh, he threaded the needle brilliantly through all of this, but at the same time, like he's he's supposedly refuting these Lutheran challenges to the Thomist natural philosophy tradition by playing footsie with some very Lutheran <laughs> concepts of authority. Well, yeah, and then okay, let's keep going with the issue of authority. Later on, um, he starts talking about authority and. Uh, tradition. He says, merely human opinions uh, become accepted when derived from ancient beliefs and are taken on authority and trust like religion or law. We parrot whatever opinions are commonly held, accepting them as truths, with all the paraphernalia of supporting arguments and proofs as though they were something firm and solid. Nobody tries to shake them, nobody tries to refute them. On the contrary, everybody vies with each other to plaster over the cracks and prop up received beliefs with all his powers of reason, mm-hmm. a supple instrument which can be turned on the lathe into any sh- uh, turned on the lathe into any shape at all. Thus, the world is pickled in stupidity and brimming over with lies. That seems like the Mark Twain Montaigne. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. He goes on lambasting uh, just the very idea of blindly accepting past laws. We do not doubt much because commonly received notions are assayed by nobody. We never try to find out whether the roots are sound. We argue about the branches. We do not ask uh, whether any statement is true, but what it has been taken to mean. We ask whether Galen said this or said that. We never ask whether he said anything valid. Uh, that sounds exactly like Cornpone Opinions, the, yeah, the Mark yeah. Twain essay. And that's also a, a refutation of the humanist effort. Right. <laughs> no. But then he also later wants to say that it's better to go ahead than to try to, I guess, subvert the established order. Yeah. So how do you square this? I think that's the real – I think I, honestly, that's the Zen Cohen of Montaigne here that he's presented. I mean that's the, – the, honestly, like I, I – in having this conversation with you, Claude, I, I have – you know, when you're actually reading it – and I guess we should say the, the experience of reading it can get pretty tedious. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We should, we should stress this. And still, I mean the animal part's fun. 
Um, yeah. But like the actual like, especially when it gets deep in the weeds on Pyrrhonism, um, it gets, you know, it gets a little much. But at the same time, there's always like little. He's he's a one liner, Montaigne. Yeah. So you, uh, just about every paragraph has like a little like turn of phrase, and you're like, oh hell yeah, you know, I, I got you, I got you, bro. I'm on, I'm on board. Um, but that's that that's that rhetoric, right? It's that use of rhetoric to make. Yeah. He almost uses rhetoric to make the argument that you can't make arguments because you're a human. And and at the same, so that leads you to that's like, well, well, then what are we doing here, man? What is <laughs> what are you, what are you doing spilling all this ink for? Yeah. Uh, and and but it's 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 fascinating that it it all goes. He he sort of he he falls he falls back on this this sort of uh, yeah this notion of you know the only way we can ever know anything is because of God, and, and that's honestly how he. Uh, this is how he's defending the Thomist stance that you can know, uh, you can know truths about the God through the natural world. Also, um, it's because he, <laughs> he ends up making the argument that like, uh, yeah, you can, you know, Sabanda's right because you can find out about the nature of ultimate reality and God through observing the natural world, but that's because God is working through you to illuminate that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the way he kind of, that's his squaring of the circle, I guess. Um, which doesn't, I mean, I don't know. It's, 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 is it convincing after 60 pages of this, like, you know, being buffeted this way and that? Like, you, you know, is, is it a kind of, you know, uh, is, is it the kind of thing where you're convinced just by sheer, uh, exhaustion by this point? Or, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, okay. I, I almost want to say there's something Stevensian about this. Uh, there's something that reminds me of Wallace Stevens, where it's almost like if we ever get to Stevens, I'll point this out in Stevens' poetry. He's very dialectical, but mm-hmm. through symbolic content. So you sort of have to navigate and bob and weave and figure it out. And a lot of times in his best poems, he comes to the conclusion that he can't come to a conclusion, that he's exhausted all possibilities as he sees them for the moment. And the only thing to do is to stop for right now and wait for the next poem. Yeah. Um, You know, I think for Stevens, there's always going to be that next poem going on down the road. And the, the one thing that I find in Montaigne, you know, he, he sets his authority on the supernatural, but he also sets his authority on himself. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. This, this is another one of those great paradoxical moments. This very awareness, he, he, he writes a lot about how he's aware that he changes his mind all the time. And he says, this very awareness of my mutability has had the secondary effect of engendering a certain constancy in my opinions. I have hardly changed any of my first and natural ones since whatever likelihood novelty may appear to have, I do not change easily for fear of losing in the exchange. As I do not have the capacity for making a choice myself, I accept another's choice and remain where God put me. Otherwise, I would not know how to save myself from endlessly rolling. <laughs> um... <laughs> I think in some ways that's the heart of this essay mm-hmm. that it's, it's the very fact that I'm so easily swayed, which makes me realize at the end of the day, I'm so extraordinarily constant. My one constant attribute is that you can always sway my opinion. 
<laughs> it's, yeah. it's that, that sort of paradox at the heart of it. Um, because <clears throat> I'm so easily taken, I may as well just stay where I am. Yeah. Um, many is the time I've taken a, an opinion contrary to my own and, as I am fond of doing, tried defending it for the fun of the exercise. Then, once my mind has really applied itself to that other side, I get so firmly attached to it that I forget why I held the first opinion and gave it up. Uh, I, almost any inclination, no matter which, takes me with it and carries me along by my own weight. <clears throat> almost anybody could say much the same of himself if he watched himself, as I do. Preachers know that the emotion which comes upon them as they speak moves them towards belief. And if we know that when we are in a temper, we devote ourselves to defending an assertion, impressing it upon ourselves, and embracing it with furious approbation far more than we ever do in cold-blooded calm. Um, we only really believe things because we believe things. Yeah. The yeah, opposite uh, could just uh, yeah. as easily be true. So... Where does that leave us? <laughs> it, man, it leaves us with 60 pages and it, and uh, and what do we have as a guy shrugging his shoulders saying, "Oh." Uh, but it, but but not really because I I think I do think though he has a solid there's a solid point he's trying to make and I, I shockingly for Montaigne, I think he actually does like wrap it up at the last bit. Um yeah. so if if you'll permit me, I I can I'm gonna read sort of the last uh sort of Please, the last paragraph. That's exactly where I was going. Okay, yeah. Um, so, uh, and and this is I, I read this actually as kind of another direct shot across the bow at the humanists, which he is such a part of that tradition. But another part of the humanist tradition was look at these great achievements and the great works of the people of classical antiquity. Human beings can improve themselves. It, it was you know is one of the basic tenets of the the, the humanist uh, the humanist ideal. And you had, you had people like uh, uh, Desiderius Erasmus you know, the, the big humanist guy of the time. Um, he was very excited about like, hey, we're going to be able to build better societies, aren't we? Uh, of course, he was <laughs> – he himself was bitterly disappointed with the direction everything went uh, by the time of his death. But anyway, so Montaigne wraps this all up, you know, in my edition, like, you know, 60, 70 pages. Uh, he says, uh, to this so religious conclusion of a pagan – you know, sort of theoretical, you know, pagan thought. Mm -hmm. I shall only add this testimony of one in the same condition for the close of this long and tedious discourse. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Montaigne, which would furnish me with endless matter. Quote, oh, what a violent, abject thing, says he, is man if he does not raise himself above humanity, end quote. Tis a good word and a profitable desire, but withal absurd. For to make the handful bigger than the hand and the armful larger than the arm, and to hope to stride further than our legs can reach is impossible and monstrous. Or that man should rise above himself and humanity? For he cannot see but with his eyes, nor sees but with his power. He shall rise if God will extraordinarily lend him his hand. He shall rise by abandoning and renouncing his own proper means, and by suffering himself to be raised and elevated by means purely celestial. It belongs to our Christian faith and not to his stoical virtue, to pretend that divine and miraculous metamorphosis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. I mean, that's, and I, I, I was honestly, I was astonished to read that and that would be the concluding thought. Cause it was like, well, damn it, Montaigne, you actually had a concluding thought there, didn't you? <laughs> but I really, but I did really love that. Like this sort of the, um, like, Oh, you know, uh, like what, what is the noblest thing for a human being to do? Well, to strive to surpass his humanity. 
And I just love that image of like, what to, to make the, the handful bigger than the hand. You, you yeah. can't, you, you're human. You're human. <clears throat> you have to face that fact. You'll never be more than human. That's what you're working with. Right. Um, and, but he, he leaves open, of course, the possibility, thanks to his Christian faith, he, there is the possibility of becoming more than the fallen, wretched creature that you are, thanks to the grace of God and exclusively the grace of God, uh, which, um, while being an Orthodox position, of sort of officially because Augustine said so, it was actually the kind of position that led to the heterodox, uh, you know, reformations all over the place when people were like, hey, it turns out I don't have to do this mass stuff. Do I, yeah. you know, or, so or that, that has, that has no bearing on what's happening. Yeah. So that's, that's a sort of fascinating paradox that keeps, you know, popping back and forth within this essay, you know, yeah. uh, using Lutheranism to refute Lutheranism and, <laughs> and, and, hum, and humanism <laughs> to undermine humanism. And it's, uh, I, I think more than anything else, this is one of those like, damn, Montaigne really was a man of his time kind of works because it, I think it encapsulates that, uh, God, that, that upending yeah. that was sort of convulsing the, you know, Western European <clears throat> society, societies at that point. And then mostly, you know, I guess we should stress mostly in the sort of the upper echelons, you know, this, this is of right. course also the time of, you know, the, the, the great bargain that was struck in the Holy Roman empire was like, okay, look, look, look. Whatever the prince of your particular dukedom or whatever decides, that's what you are. So <laughs> we need to recall that in all of this, like it was a massive upending of society and, you know, in, uh, in a lot of ways. But, it, you know, people still had to go out and take care of the oxen and, you know, and, and sow the wheat and all that. But uh, but at the same time, though, I mean, you know, everyone on the street knew that this was, you know, big things were afoot. Um, yeah. And I, and I was as it's as I was reading it that I realized like well shit like Montaigne in this and this endlessly div, you know diverting and paradoxical and 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 self refuting essay he's encapsulating this sort of freefall this intellectual and spiritual freefall that uh, the Latin West is kind of experiencing yeah. Uh, yeah, and his his his, his uh, you know his prescription is you know this kind of nirvana state which is impossible to achieve probably well it this this as much as we've been talking about deconstruction this seems to me closer to montaigne the modernist mm -hmm. that I, I i think you're accurate in describing him as sort of recording that radical shift that's occurring in in western europe at the time that that real undermining of certain kinds of theological or philosophical authorities mm -hmm. and this desire to find some kind of some kind of stability some kind of mental stability that allow you to rest i think montaigne finds stability in instability and it's that paradoxical aspect of it that that seems extraordinarily modernist to me. Mm -hmm. um, one more time, that seems so much in line with something like Stevens that you know I can't get it out of my head now. <laughs> but yeah. but there's also there's also that aspect of it. We're human. Don't try to be more than human. Yeah, uh, you're not gonna get that far. 
you, you know that that's something to keep in mind as we move further down the line into something like Faust, where the whole point is to move beyond the human. And we can even think about our own time and the the competing claims right now about extending the human or or even, you know, genetically altering the human so that the human is not human anymore. Right. Quote right. unquote perfecting the species. When we try to become more than what we are, uh, disaster seems to follow. Yeah. And yet should we not also be hopeful for change at certain moments? I can keep doing this all night. <laughs> and, and so could Montaigne. But I think that's yeah. probably a good place for us to wrap it up for uh, for this time. So, so yeah, there <laughs> there are other essays in here that that were really sort of um, that that were fascinating in their own right that I think deserve uh, reading. Uh, I I found his uh, his essay on. Um, Fathers and sons, or, or not even fathers and sons, on fathers and their children, to mm-hmm. be really kind of fascinating in its own right. Uh, just because a lot of it did have to do with his relationship to his own father. Um, the essay on cruelty, I thought, was really kind of interesting because that's the one that reminds you that he's living in the middle of basically all-out war at any given moment and he's he's sort of cringing at the horrible things that we do to each other yeah Uh, freedom of conscience was one that hit me and then um what was the other one yeah on thumbs (laughs) yeah yeah so, so you know in the middle of this there's a lot of his uh you know, wild, bizarre spinning and stuff like that. But, uh, and the apology for Raymond Simone is the sort of centerpiece of all this, but there's some good sort of like sorties off to the side here and there that, that deserve thinking about. We just don't have time to do it right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'll be finishing up, uh, next time with book three and, uh, We'll we'll just dive into that as we can. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see what what tickles our fancy here. And uh, I, you know, if it's if it's another deep dive into the 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 absolute mires of epistemology and theology, then damn it, that's what we'll do. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, it'll be a change of pace. We'll see. Yeah, I really hope not. All right. So, um, do we have a social media presence? Uh, we, we will have more of one when I remember my login information for the Twitter account that I set up. I actually (laughs) forgot, uh, which email I used for that. Apologies, everyone. I will figure that out. Um, (laughs) but yeah, uh, uh, cannonball pod, um, you know, at cannonball pod is, uh, the, uh, erstwhile, uh, Twitter presence there. I will, uh, again, once I remember the login info. Uh, or recover it. I will uh, be a little more active there. You know, we'll always be tweeting out links to new shows. And uh, if I see anything cool related to, uh, you know, what we're doing, I'll try to try to uh, work it out there. Um, but uh, yeah, so be on the lookout for that uh, or possibly also, a different handle if I can't remember how to get into that one. <laughs> <laughs> and we've also got the the blog still up and I'm, I'm going to be uh, updating that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, 
the cannibal podcast at wordpress and so i'm i'm gonna try and get some more extended uh writings over there uh in particular <clears throat> we did a crossover episode a while back with uh some of the agora podcast members well we i did <laughs> you had to take on <laughs> sick but i, I did, did sadly so yes episode on who's uh who's greater Aragorn from Lord of the Rings or Jon Snow from uh, Song of Fire and Ice, uh, Game of Thrones. And uh, I I don't really know either work that well, but I held my own. And what fascinated (laughs) me, well, I like to think I held my own, but what fascinated me were some of the differences between the two works that seem to line up in how we might could think about modern and postmodern literature. Yeah. Uh, though I hesitate to use these large isms and things like that, et cetera, et cetera. So I was going to try and map some of those out <laughs> on the blog. Yeah. And if anybody's cool. interested, um, you know, that might be up there. So anyway, uh, I, I think like Montaigne at the end of this essay claims to be, I am mentally exhausted. So absolutely. <laughs> Let us, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to turn my brain off. I'm going to engage in some ataraxia and I'm just going to Zen out for a while, man. I'm going to go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. So I'll see you later and thank you very much for listening.